today, we're going to work at understanding the gospel. Uh, The message that Paul brought the first time he was in Thessalonica, the news that because of his grace, God has made everything right in Christ. Last week, we heard Paul giving thanks for all the good things that God had done in and through the people at Thessalonica. Today, we're going to continue in the letter, and we're going to do that expecting that God will help us continue to grow as we do. And so I want you to find your way uh, to the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Follow along with me uh, from verse 1. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. Now, if you're reading carefully, you can tell that this is a letter Because of some of the things that Paul says, he starts with, you yourselves know. He goes on to say, as you know. Now, they know things which we can't know because they were there when Paul told those stories and we were not. And that pertains not only to the details of what he went through, but also the message which he brought to them. He refers to it as the gospel of God. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul had come to Thessalonica with a message that was given to him by God to bring to them. It wasn't his own message. It was, as he says, Good news, the gospel. The word in Greek, euangelion, literally means good news. And it was with this message that he came to the Thessalonians, and here he has it in mind that they know the message already, so he doesn't need to rehearse it again for them. In Paul's mind, they have that news as a foundation, and everything else he says in the letter is going to be built on that foundation, which we don't have in the same way that they did. We need to do a little work to understand what this gospel of God, which Paul brought to them, actually was. Thankfully, we have material that we can draw from in the rest of the New Testament. The book of Acts in particular, which is the second part of Luke recounts the story of what happened to Paul as he went from city to city. So find your way to the 17th chapter of Acts now. Okay, we're going to be moving around a lot this morning, so you've got to be on your toes. Uh, Find verse 6 in Acts 17, and I want you to put your finger on it for a moment, and then listen to me. This tells the story of what happened when Paul was in Thessalonica. 
He went into the synagogue. He argued from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah and that his death and resurrection had to take place because the scriptures said so. Some of the folks there believed. They began to form a community together, but those who didn't were so unsettled with what was happening with this new movement of believers that they uh, forcibly dragged some of those converts before the authorities in Thessalonica, and then they made an accusation against them. Now look at verse 6 and the quotation there. This is what they said about Paul and his message. These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. The message that Paul brought was a message that turned the world upside down. Now that's how it looked to the ordinary folks in that city who saw the way that people had changed because of this message. To them, it seemed to be some kind of news that threatened to turn the world upside down. How did it do that? Now, this is how I am going to guide us into the gospel together this morning. It's with this question, what is it about the message that Paul delivered that turns the world upside down? How did it do that then? And how might it do that now? For Renaissance Church altogether, and for each one of us, how does the news that Paul delivered, how does it upend things? Now, in chapter 17, which is the, the recounting of what happened in Thessalonica, we don't actually get a detailed account of what Paul said in the synagogue, but we can find that just a few chapters back. Uh, turn to Acts 13. In this chapter, we actually get a clear picture of the kind of gospel address that Paul was accustomed to bringing when he visited synagogues. Okay, he did it in Thessalonica. Here, we're going to listen to him do it in Antioch. He arrives at that synagogue after the scriptures are read. Now, this is important to keep in mind. The scriptures would have been the Old Testament for them. There was no New Testament yet. But after those scriptures were read, since Paul was a visitor, the attendant asked him, do you want to add anything? That was a part of the customs. When a, a traveling teacher came, they would let them add their thoughts. And so Paul stands up and he begins to unfold for them the gospel. And we're going to listen in right in the center where he begins to talk about salvation in Jesus. Look at verse 26. My brothers, Paul says, you descendants of Abraham's family and others who fear God. That is, the Jewish people who are in attendance along with the Greeks who are there also because they want to learn about God too. To us, Paul says, the message of this salvation has been sent. That's his way of saying, I have something to bring to you that was sent to me. Not something that I invented or came up with, but rather something that God has revealed to me. I'm coming to you to pass it on. And it's a message of salvation. It's a story about how God saves. About how he rescues and how he delivers, how he restores and how he heals. Everyone in that synagogue knew deep down that that's just what we need. And that's what our whole world needs. It needs to be rescued and delivered and healed. It needs to be saved. Paul says, I've got the message 
of salvation for you. And then he begins to unfold it in detail in verse 27. And there we're going to see the first way that the gospel turns the world upside down. I'm going to tell you what it is before we read it. Here it is. The gospel is a message that turns failure upside down. It turns every mistake that we make and we regret and we wish we hadn't done it that way, it turns those things upside down. That's a pattern of how God works. Verse 27 says this, because the residents of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize him, that's Jesus, or understand the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled those words by condemning him. Now, right there, there is a pattern, and the pattern is that failure is turned by God into success. Follow the logic, okay? First of all, the residents of Jerusalem and their leaders, that would have been the people who lived in that cities and the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't recognize him. That is, Jesus was right there with them, but they couldn't tell who he was. They, they miss. Uh, they misapprehended who this man was. That was a failure on their part. Now look again. It goes on to say, they didn't understand the words of the prophets that were read. When those folks in Jerusalem and those religious leaders gathered in the synagogues week after week, the scriptures which were read were actually about the Messiah who God would send to rescue and deliver. And none of those people understood that even though they were there week after week. And that's a second failure. Do you see it? And based on those two failures, they condemned him. That is, they judged Jesus to be guilty of a crime that deserved death. That was their condemnation of him. A third and massive failure by anyone's account. But those three failures, notice, enabled, look at what it says, enabled them to fulfill those words. And that means success. And here we have a dynamic, and it is very plain, if you let it settle on your heart, which is also very encouraging, and it is that the way that God works is that he turns their failure into his success. The gospel is the message which turns failure upside down and makes it into the very way that God fulfills his plans. And, and this is a part of the gospel message which we need to receive. It's not brand new. It's not only in what happened with Jesus. In fact, anyone who knows the Bible well knows that it tells the story over and over again of God doing good things and his people failing over and over again. Right? Think back to the first story. There is a garden which is good and there is a failure to trust God. And then there is the freedom that God gives his people from captivity in Egypt, a good gift. And then there is the failure of gratitude in the desert where they complain for years and years and years and wish they could go back. There is the gift that God gives them of the law to guide them into the right way. And do you remember what happened? Moses was up on the mountain just a little too long and then they made a statue of gold and they began to worship a cow. Again, a failure over and over. And the history of God's people, which Paul knew and those folks in the synagogue knew, was a history of repeated failure on the part of God's people and it was a history of repeated patience 
and determination to go on promoting the good of the people by God, so much so that he would not let even their worst failures upset his plans ultimately. And that is a part of the pattern of the gospel. Now take it to heart for a moment for your own self right now. Because this part of the gospel has implications for your life. It means that our failures, our personal failures, are not enough ultimately to prevent God from succeeding in our lives. So it means if you look back and you see, I really failed there as a parent with my children. Or when I made that decision about that relationship, that was a massive mistake and there's no way around it. Or as a friend, I'm sure that I should have done that, but I did not do that. Or as a church altogether, we might say, ah, we missed the boat at this point. We could have done things better there. This dynamic of the gospel means that none of those failures have to upset God's plans ultimately because the way that God works is that God is like an artisan who takes the mistakes and weaves them into something new but still beautiful. Like a potter who's working on a clay vessel, it gets marred and instead of giving up and throwing the lump away, he starts again and makes it new. And that, by the way, is an image from the Bible. Do some of you know that? Don't you think this is a hopeful fact, if it's true, that the gospel turns failures into success in God's providence? God is so good and so powerful that he can bend every failure, even the failure of his people to receive the Messiah and their failure in crucifying him into the service of his good plans so that every part of our story gets a part in the story that God is unfolding. That's the first thing we see from this message of Paul, that the gospel turns the world upside down by turning failure on its head. And that's hopeful. Now, come back with me to the message that Paul preached there in Antioch in Acts 13. And we're going to see in verses 28 and 29 a second way the gospel turns the world upside down. Okay? Here, we're going to see how it turns guilt upside down. That's a specific kind of failure, guilt. Verse 28, even though they found no cause for a sentence of death, that means even though Jesus was innocent, they asked Pilate to have him killed, that is, to treat him as if he was guilty. When they had carried out everything that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. That is, it appears as though their plan succeeded. But here we see another dynamic about the gospel, which is related to guilt, and here it is. The gospel is a story about an innocent man who becomes guilty before the people so that guilty people might become innocent before God. The gospel turns guilt on its head for both parties. The innocent becomes guilty so that the guilty can become innocent. There's a story in the Gospel of Matthew which dramatically captures this exchange which is at the heart of the Gospel. If you're receiving the daily text messages that I'm sending and reading along in the Gospel of Matthew, you will read this story on your own on Thursday. Jesus has been accused by the religious authorities They bring him to Pilate because only Pilate is allowed 
to preside over cases that involve the death sentence, the death penalty. And Pilate interviews him and says, there's no guilt in this man. But he sees that the, the Jewish people are so bent on sending him to the cross that if he just forgives him, which he feels he should because he's innocent, then he'll have a riot on his hands. Do you remember what he does? He thinks of uh, a tradition that the Jewish people have that on, uh, every time there's a Passover celebration, they get to free one prisoner. Listen, they get to treat one guilty person as if he's innocent. And so Pilate brings out Barabbas, who is a notorious murderer. He's obviously guilty. Everybody knows it. And he puts Barabbas, the guilty, on the stage right beside Jesus, the innocent, in front of everyone. And he says, you make the decision. Who should we free? And the crowd chooses to free Barabbas so that Jesus will remain imprisoned. That is, they decide to treat the guilty as if he's innocent so that they can treat the innocent as if he's guilty. And here an exchange happens which depicts what the gospel says happens for every single person who chooses to believe Jesus. Which is that there is an exchange that turns guilt on its head so that those who are guilty, and the Bible says that's everybody, are regarded by God as if they are innocent. And that's for anyone who's willing to trust Jesus. The gospel turns the world upside down by turning guilt on its head. Here, look carefully with me at what is said uh, there in verse 28. This is really important. Actually, it's in verse 29. When they had carried out everything that was written about him, Paul is saying that when they did this, when they treated the innocent as if he were guilty, they were actually fulfilling words that were written about Jesus in the synagogue. He has in mind a passage from Scripture that those folks would have known, Isaiah 53. A place where the prophet actually names this dynamic as how God will deal with the problem of the guilt of his people. Turn to Isaiah 53. In verse 4 of that chapter, listen very carefully to what the prophet says. This names the dynamic of how, how God will turn guilt upside down in the gospel. Speaking about a servant of God, here's what Isaiah writes. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. Here, listen carefully. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the prophet's way of saying, one day there will be a servant of God who comes, and the way he's going to turn failure on its head is by becoming guilty for those who are guilty so that they can become innocent. Their iniquities, their transgressions, all of their misdeeds, every mistake, every one of their failures, I, God says, will take it away from them. It will be mine so that they can be innocent. The way that Paul describes this dynamic in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is hard to beat. He says this, For our sakes, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's 
That's how the gospel turns the world upside down. It says to the guilty, God wants you to be innocent. He'll take your guilt so that you can have his innocence. Think now of your own guilt. We do an awful lot to avoid the ways that we failed and the ways that we've been guilty. Why wouldn't we? It's very hard to face up to our mistakes and our guilt and our sin. But the gospel says, bring it to mind, God takes it away. Jesus decided to do that. You might not want him to, but what he wants matters more than what you want, and he decided to. The gospel turns your guilt into innocence. And all you need to do is to loosen your grip and accept it. Uh, Those folks in the synagogue needed to accept it, that under their own steam, they would always and forever be sheep who could only go astray. But God is the good shepherd who comes searching for every lost sheep. Not to blame or hold accountable, but rather to say, you are my beloved and I love you and my grace takes away your guilt and it gives you my innocence. Be mine. There's a third way in this message where Paul describes the world overturning quality of the gospel. And it's in verse 30. Uh, Here we're going to see that the gospel turns death upside down too. Uh, Here's what happened after Jesus was laid in the tomb. This is verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus. In all four Gospels, all of them, the fact of Jesus' resurrection is absolutely central. Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. Instead, the power of God raised him from the dead, not only for our failures, not only so our guilt could be overturned, but also so that death, which is the worst of all enemies, would also be forever conquered in his victory. Jesus died for us, but he also was raised for us. That's what the gospel tells us. He was raised to be the pioneer or the vanguard for us of what's ahead for all who are in him, which is not only forgiveness and new life now, but the end of death forever too. And and in Christ, God has not only conquered death in in the physical sense, but in every form that death reigns in all of creation, uh, the scriptures tell us that God has made a way for the release of creation to its bondage to decay and death forever so that one day when Jesus returns, that truth will be forever seen as all of creation is released from its bondage to sin and decay. The gospel turns death in every form it exists upside down. The good news, as Paul says here, and he says it right there, the good news, is that the resurrection fulfilled, you see it again there in verse 32, what God promised to our ancestors. Just like the other points, this already was prefigured in the scriptures that those folks had as they gathered to learn of God. Here, Paul is thinking of those places in the Old Testament where the promise of God's victory over death in every form is made plain. We already heard Ryan read one of those passages in Micah Turn to Isaiah one more time. Find your way to chapter 25. Here we'll find another place 
where the prophet promises that one day God's goodness, God's power will overturn death in every form it exists. It starts in verse 6. Picture this vision in your mind. On this mountain, the prophet says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods. A feast of well-aged wines. Of rich food with the marrow. Of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples. The sheath that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. On this day, the Lord of hosts will will sit before all who are gathered for this feast and there will be enough food for everyone. That is, the death of hunger will be overturned. There will be wine, good wine, to gladden the human heart. That is, the death of grief will be overturned. The shroud that covers all people, the sheet that covers the nation, this is an image of the belief that we have, which is a lie, that the people on this planet who don't agree with us are our enemies. No, on this day, that sheet will be removed. The death of division will be taken away and overturned. And we will finally have unity with our fellow men and women on this globe. Death and and physical death will be swallowed up forever so that no more will any of us have to grieve the loss of those people we loved and who are gone or, or our own fear of physical degradation. That will be swallowed up. Every tear, all disgrace, and every bit of shame will be gone. That is, the death of every hurt will be overturned and made into joy and gladness forever. The gospel promises That death itself will be overturned. All of those promises, according to Paul, they began to be true in Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus conquered death and, and came back with a new body, he was already the firstborn among many. And that shows us what we should hope for when it comes to putting our hope in the good news, the gospel, that one day so it will be for all of those who are, as Paul says, in him. This is the good news that Paul brought to Thessalonica. When he was there with those people, he brought a message that turned failure, our failure, into a success by God's grace. He brought a message that declared that our guilt has been turned into innocence by God's grace. That's also his message. And he brought He brought good news that turned death upside down. We're going to read later on together in the letter of Thessalonica about death as those people faced it. It was good news that turned death upside down as well. What what should a person who hears this good news do? Uh, We know that the folks in Thessalonica responded positively to this good news. That's why there were so many things to be thankful for. Look one last time in Acts 13. Because a bit further down in that address at Antioch, in verse 38, Paul makes it plain how he believes each and every person in that synagogue should respond. It's how every one of us should respond to this good news. 
Even if we've responded to it in the past, it's how we should do it again. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, my brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Proclaimed there means stated as a fact, not offered as a possibility. That's not the gospel. The gospel says sins have been forgiven. That's a fact. It happened when Jesus died. Whether you believe it or not, he died for your sins, the sins of the whole world. That has been accomplished and there's nothing that you can do to change it. But then he goes on to add, look carefully, verse 39, by this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What we should do is believe. Because freedom from sin comes through believing. Freedom from everything that's back there. Freedom from all of those patterns of life that we still find ourselves drawn into today. And freedom from all of the ways we're going to make the wrong steps in the future. We are free from all of that when we believe. And believe there means trusting. It simply means deciding that I will accept, I'll believe it, I'll trust it, that every one of my failures is not enough to overdo God's success. It means being completely willing to say, I will take my hands off of my guilt and my sin. I accept that I am forgiven. And that's the most important thing about me when I look at who I am before God. And it means hoping today and tomorrow putting yourself in God's hands, that death is not the end. It is an end. It's not the end. And even in every form it exists right now, it will not have the last word. I'm going to accept that. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And when you do that, you're free. Now, it is plain to me, even though we don't have these words that we've just unfolded in the, in, in the book of Thessalonians, that this is the message that Paul gave to them. And it's also plain to me that they believed because they were free. We're going to see that especially next week as we continue in the second chapter. But let me, let me close with this. You don't have to believe it. And God's not going to force you. But if you won't believe it, then you will not be free. For those folks in the synagogue, that's what Paul meant when he said, you can't be freed from those sins by the law of Moses. That was their strategy for being free. And Paul was telling them, it doesn't work. And every other strategy that people nowadays are pursuing to find freedom does not work. But this one does. Trusting Jesus. Why not believe it? If you won't, you are like a person who's in a prison whose doors have been broken wide open by God's grace. You, you can choose to stay there, but you don't have to. Thank God for the good news. Uh, let's join our hearts together in prayer. God, we thank you for the good news which turns failure upside down and turns guilt upside down and turns even death upside down. We thank you that in Christ you have come to take the place of every guilty person and then to share your innocence with them. We thank you that despite all of the failures of your people throughout history and even to this very day, none of them are so great that they 
can prevent you from carrying out your plan successfully. And we thank you that your message, your good news, is a message which conquers death forever. God, may we today be drawn again to the place where we believe. And in that belief, may we experience freedom again. And may you use us in every way that you can to be the bearers of this good news into the world where you've placed us. Continue to help us grow as we hear your word and as day by day we are more and more conformed to the image of the goodness of your Son, Christ. In his name we pray together.